Chapter 8 Crusaders Pagans are wrong and Christians are right. The Song of Roland In the last week of August 1071, the Byzantine emperor, Romanus IV Diogenes, contemplated the Seljuk sultan Alp Arslan from a position of some discomfort and total disadvantage, his neck being held under Alp Arslan's boot. Romanus's hand hurt where he had been injured the previous day. He was muddy and bloody. It had taken some effort for him to convince the sultan that he was in fact the leader of anything at all, let alone the inheritor state of Rome. And once he had persuaded Alp Arslan of that fact, the Seljuk leader had insisted on performing ritual humiliation by standing on his neck. Romanus was not having a wonderful day. The events that had brought him to such a woeful position were these. Earlier that summer, Romanus had summoned a huge army, consisting of perhaps 40,000 men, drawn from a wide area. Besides Greek-speaking warriors from the imperial interior, he had gathered together Franks and Viking Rus, Pechenegs and Oghus from Central Asia, and Georgians from the Caucasus. He had marched them to the east of the Byzantine Empire where Alp Arslan had been raiding imperial territory from the direction of Armenia and northern Syria. Romanus's aim was to send the sultan and his own large army of light cavalry, mounted archers, packing, and prevent them making further inroads into his provinces in Asia Minor. But events had not gone his way. On the 26th of August, he had tried to bring the Seljuks to battle at Manzikert, near Lake Van, today in eastern Turkey. But Alp Arslan had outsmarted him. The light cavalry had refused to come to blows, retreating and forcing the Byzantine army to follow them. Then as dusk was falling, the Seljuks had suddenly turned and charged, creating confusion, panic and even defection among Romanus's ranks. With embarrassing ease, the Byzantine troops had been put to flight, and although Romanus had fought hard, he had lost his horse from under him, had his sword hands slashed to ribbons, among other injuries, and was eventually surrounded and captured. After a grim night spent bleeding, he had been dragged before Alp Arslan, and now, beneath the sultan's heel, he lay. Fortunately for Romanus, this awkward state of affairs did not last long. Having made his point, Alp Arslan released the emperor, pulled him to his feet and told him not to worry. Although a captive, he would from now on be treated decently, fed well, given medical care and kept honourably in the sultan's company. After a week or so, he would be allowed to go back to Constantinople, where he could recover his strength and go about his business as he pleased. This was a show of calculated magnanimity that emphasised the sultan's nobility and it saved Romanus Diogenes's life for a time. The Seljuks, whom Alp Arslan led, were Turks. They were Sunni Muslims, descended originally from nomadic tribes who lived around the Aral Sea, which today lies between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. But since the late 10th century, they had risen to become the dominant power in the Islamic world, conquering their way out of Central Asia into Persia taking control of Baghdad in 1055 with the approval of the Abbasid Caliph, and subsequently branching out towards Syria, Armenia, Georgia and the eastern fringes of Byzantium. By the time Emperor Romanus stood up to them, the Seljuks were ascendant across a huge stretch of the Middle East, perhaps 3,000 kilometres wide. And they had ambitions to push further still, into Egypt, ruled from AD 909 by Shia caliphs of the Fatimid dynasty, northwards through the Caucasus towards the lands of the Rus, and all the way across Asia Minor as far as the Bosphorus Strait on which sat Constantinople. That was why Romanus had been compelled to stand up to them. That was why his failure, ensured by defeat and embarrassment at Manzikert, mattered. When Romanus set out for Constantinople, things did not go well. For, as Alp Arslan knew, the one thing guaranteed to sow even more discord in Byzantium than killing an emperor was sending one back who had been beaten. Besides the reverse on the battlefield, 
Romanus had lost the northern Syrian cities of Antioch and Edessa, as well as Manzikert itself. He had agreed to pay Alp Arslan an onerous yearly tribute, and had promised to marry one of his daughters to one of the sultan's sons. He manifestly could not now be depended on to defend Asia Minor from future attacks, and there were obvious questions about whether he would be able to keep European rivals at the other end of the empire from stripping away imperial territories in the Balkans too. He was a lame-duck emperor, and Byzantium did not tolerate those. The rebellion began as soon as news of Romanus's defeat reached his capital. A rival emperor, Michael VII Ducas, was proclaimed. Michael had been one of the senior officers at Manzikert, but escaped the battlefield unscathed. Michael sent his son, Andronicus Ducas, to intercept Romanus before he could reach Constantinople, and the old emperor was captured. To render him politically dead, Andronicus had Romanus blinded and transported to the island of Proti, just off the coast of the Peloponnese. Unfortunately, the blinding also rendered Romanus literally dead. According to one chronicler, Romanus's wounds became infected so that his face and head were alive with worms. Not surprisingly, he perished very soon after, in the summer of 1072. It was now up to the Ducas clan to save Byzantium from dismemberment by the Seljuk Turks. In this, the Ducases failed. Sniffing weakness and dissent at the heart of Byzantium, the Seljuks rushed into Asia Minor, sweeping through Byzantine territory. Michael VII proved wholly overmatched and suffered a series of revolts against his rule before he resigned the throne in 1078. When the 1080s dawned, a major reordering of the Near and Middle East was underway, and it threatened to squeeze Byzantium until the pip squeaked. The Byzantines were not only frozen out of Asia Minor, their reputation as the regional bulwark for Christianity in the eastern Mediterranean had also been dealt a severe blow. In 1009, they had proven powerless when a Fatimid caliph in Egypt, Al-Hakim, had ordered the destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which protected Christ's tomb. Now they were in an even weaker position. In their place, the ascendant powers in the east were the Seljuks, and to a lesser extent, the Fatimids of Egypt. The Fatimids and the Seljuks were themselves at odds, of course, divided by religious schism and economic rivalry in Syria and Palestine. Yet between them, they were picking away at the spiritual and territorial potency of Byzantium. Without an emperor able to take urgent action, there might soon be very little of the old Roman Empire left. It was hard to see where salvation would come from. Then, however, in 1081, a new emperor, Alexius I Komnenos, came to the throne. A brilliant military officer and a veteran of the Battle of Manzikert, Alexios had a vision of how the fortunes of Byzantium might be restored. Salvation, he thought, lay in a part of the Roman Empire that had detached from Constantinople some 700 years previously. In the second decade of his reign, Alexios sent an SOS call that would change history. Byzantine ambassadors were packed off to the realms of the West to ask for military and moral support from the other half of Christendom, Western Europe and the lands of the Franks. They had set in chain events that would coalesce as one of the most astonishing events in medieval history, the First Crusade. Urban II. On the 12th of March 1088, a middle-aged French bishop called Odo of Châtillon was consecrated as Pope Urban II. Already Odo had enjoyed a distinguished career in the church. As a young man, he had taken vows as a Benedictine monk and proved himself a star in the Cluniac system, becoming its second most senior official when he was prior of Cluny Abbey during the tenure of the great Abbot Hugh. As we saw in Chapter 6, Cluny's dignitaries during its golden era tended to be at ease in high company, and Odo was no different. Like Abbot Hugh, he ingratiated himself with leaders across Europe and became particularly close to the great reforming Pope Gregory VII. 
Around 1080, Gregory plucked Odo out of Cluny to appoint him Cardinal Bishop of Ostia. This was his springboard to the papacy itself. The political circumstances under which Odo became Pope Urban were highly unpromising. For a start, the church was in a double schism. The first schism was doctrinal and dated back just over three decades to 1054. In that year, disagreements between the churches of Constantinople and Rome concerning matters such as the appropriate duration of fasts and what kind of bread to use for the Eucharist had flared up in an exchange of mutually contemptuous letters, followed by tit-for-tat excommunications. Relations between the eastern and western halves of Christendom were delicate and Urban had to seek ways to smooth them where he could. The Second Schism had its origins across the Alps. In 1076, the so-called investiture controversy had erupted between Gregory VII and the German king Henry IV. Although this was ostensibly a disagreement over whether secular rulers could appoint or invest bishops without papal approval, the contest really drove to the heart of a much bigger question, the roots of which lay in Charlemagne's reign when the rulers of Frankish Germany had been allowed to develop notions of imperium. This posed deep constitutional questions. Were popes the single highest authority in the West, as Gregory had asserted in 1075, in a document known as the Dictatus Pape? Or were kings supreme in their realms, under God alone? That was Henry's position. With so much at stake, affairs became rancorous, then violent. When Urban was elected, a German-sponsored anti-pope, Clement III, was at large, and Rome had recently been attacked by the Normans of southern Italy. Added to all this were other pressing matters of governance. Urban was a Gregorian reformer who shared his late mentor's ambition to enforce high standards of clerical behaviour and extend papal control across the Christian West. This was not only about paying attention to morality inside monasteries, there was a secular dimension too. Since the late 10th century, European churchmen had been fretting over what they could do to rein in the violence perpetrated by knights engaged in local feuds. The popes had direct experience of this through the Normans of southern Italy. The trouble was, or seemed to be, endemic. Two early attempts to impose church discipline over unruly knights were known as the peace movements, the Peace of God, Pax Dei, and the Truce of God, Truga Dei. These were mass advocacy programmes through which clergy tried to impress on fighting men the need to refrain from plundering churches, killing, raping, maiming or robbing civilians. Bishops tried to enforce the peace by putting towns and regions under the church's explicit protection and threatening God's curse against trespassers who did their inhabitants harm. The truce, meanwhile, named days and times of the year when fighting was forbidden. Both the peace and the truce of God proved widely popular among the common people, but they were not enormously effective. So among the many things that vexed Urban at the outset of his papacy was how to support moral censure with positive action. Then, in 1095, an intriguing solution presented itself. In the first week of March, ambassadors from Alexios I Komnenos' court in Constantinople appeared in the west. They tracked down Urban in the city of Piacenza, where he was holding an ecclesiastical council known as a synod and they made him a proposal. According to the German chronicler, Bernold of St. Blazen, they humbly implored the Lord Pope and all Christ's faithful people to give the Byzantines some help against the pagans in defence of the Holy Church, which the pagans had almost destroyed in that region, having seized that territory up to the walls of the city of Constantinople. It was a big ask, yet their pleas fell on willing ears. This was not the first time that such a request had arrived from Byzantium. After the catastrophe at Manzikert, an anonymous letter addressed to the Count of Flanders had begged Western military aid against the Turks. Pope Gregory had separately lobbied secular princes to bring aid to the Christians who were grievously afflicted by the most frequent ravagings of the Saracens. Until now, 
there had been little serious interest, but in the 1090s, it was a different story. From the spring of 1095 onwards, Pope Urban threw himself into an extraordinary rallying tour, concentrated on southern France and Burgundy. He glad-handed powerful noblemen and bishops, influential men such as Raymond, Count of Toulouse, Odo, Duke of Burgundy, and Adhemar, Bishop of Le Puy, and he excited preachers, both official and unofficial, to take his message far and wide. That message was truly explosive. Urban called upon the fighting men of the Roman Church to take up arms and march east, where they would help the Byzantine emperor drive out the perfidious Turks from his lands. And this would be just the first step. The end goal was not Constantinople, but Christ's sepulchre in Muslim-ruled Jerusalem. If Byzantine emperors could not protect Christian interests there, Urban reasoned, popes would step in. They would not just save Byzantium. They would usurp the role of Roman emperors as guardians of the holiest places in the Christian world. One reason Urban could conceive of such a grand plan lay in his years spent in Cluny's cloisters. As we have seen, under the leadership of Abbot Hugh, Cluny had been knitted into the economy of warfare against non-Christian powers through its relationship with kings like Alfonso VI of Castile, an enthusiastic Reconquista warrior. Cluny's financial strength and regional spread had been aided in no small part by the profits of the Reconquista, and the Roman Church's mission on the Iberian Peninsula had also been boosted by the triumphs ground out in the 1080s and 1090s by men like El Cid. Might it be that what had worked in the West could transfer its scale to the East? It would not be easy. Urban's vision of conquering Jerusalem was a medieval moonshot. But the Pope was confident. In October 1095, he visited Cluny, where the world's biggest church was under construction. He blessed Cluny's high altar and stayed a week among his former colleagues and friends. Then in November, he convened another church council, 90 miles away at Clermont. And on the 27th of November, he gave a sermon destined to be spoken of for a thousand years. The exact text is lost, but according to a chronicler known as Fulcher of Chartres, Urban implored his audience to hasten to carry aid to your brethren dwelling in the East, who need your help, for which they have often entreated. For the Turks, a Persian people, have attacked them and have advanced as far into Roman territory as Constantinople. They have seized more and more lands of the Christians, have already defeated them in seven times as many battles, killed or captured many people, have destroyed churches, and have devastated the kingdom of God. Wherefore, with earnest prayer, God exhorts you, as heralds of Christ, to repeatedly urge men of all ranks whatsoever, knights as well as foot soldiers, rich and poor, to hasten to exterminate this vile race from our lands and to aid the Christian inhabitants in time. To this stirring and, we may note, bracingly violent entreaty, Urban added an incentive. All who went on his campaign of extermination and died along the way would be rewarded with remission of sins. Their earthly misdeeds would be forgiven, their passage to heaven smoothed. In an age where offsetting sin had become a serious moral and financial concern for the people of the West, this was a highly alluring offer. Urban had produced a new and enduring spiritual calculus. Those who committed to leaving home and slaughtering other human beings thousands of miles away would earn the wages of heaven. It went down a storm. So did the Pope's plan to send his armies from Byzantium to the Holy Land. In a report of Urban's sermon, recorded by a chronicler known as Robert the Monk, when the Pope mentioned his plan to liberate Jerusalem, the royal city at the centre of the world that begs and craves to be free, his audience threw back their heads and roared, Deus vult, they cried, Deus vult, God wills it, God wills it. Like a modern-day politician at an election rally, Urban had established a call-and-response catchphrase 
which would motivate his supporters long after he had moved on. He also invented a neat piece of theatre. At the climax of the Clermont rally, the Pope's most committed supporters, starting with Bishop Adhemar, threw themselves on their knees, begging to join the glorious expedition. Urban commanded all who wished to participate to mark themselves out from their neighbours by fixing a sign of the cross to their shoulders or chests before going out into the world to spread the word and prepare for departure. Although the term crusade was not yet coined, Urban had created the first crusaders, a phenomenon known first as the Great Stirring and later as the First Crusade had begun. The First Crusade The first people to feel the wrath of Urban II's crusaders were not Turks at the gates of Constantinople, nor Seljuks in Syria, nor Fatimids in Jerusalem. Rather, they were ordinary Jewish men, women and children in the cities of the Rhineland, who in the late spring of 1096 fell victim to the murderous instincts of Christian mobs, worked up into a frenzy by preachers promising a quick path to heaven. In cities such as Worms, Mainz, Speyer and Cologne, roving bands stalked the streets, burning synagogues, beating and killing Jewish families and forcing individual Jews to convert to Christianity or commit suicide. Accounts of the atrocities at that time are a depressing reminder of the long and stubborn history of European anti-Semitism, which came to a head in the 20th century. In 1096, Jews were dragged around the streets with their necks in nooses, herded into houses and burned or beheaded in the streets before cheering crowds. From this cruel slaughter of the Jews, only a few escaped, wrote the chronicler Albert of Aachen. Then, that intolerable company of men and women, i.e. the Crusaders, continued on their way towards Jerusalem. This was not quite as Urban II had intended. His vision for the First Crusade was one in which powerful nobles would lead large military divisions towards the Holy Land, in a reasonably organised fashion. Yet the first wave of crusaders to depart Europe for the East consisted of poorly trained and barely controllable zealots, egged on by populist demagogues, including a shabby but charismatic ascetic called Peter the Hermit, and a rich but disreputable German count called Emiko of Flonheim. The People's Crusade, as this amateur vanguard was later known, swept eastwards through Europe during the summer of 1096, followed the Danube through Hungary into the Balkans and pitched up at the gates of Constantinople in early August. The Emperor Alexios Komnenos was not delighted to see them. They had announced their arrival by rioting and skirmishing in Byzantine towns along their route, and their lack of military expertise and discipline made them worthless for the task at hand, driving Turkish armies, commanded by a warlord and self-appointed Sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan I, out of Asia Minor for good. Alexios's erudite and literate daughter, Anna Komnini, recalled consternation in Constantinople as word whipped around of the Crusaders' approach. She thought Peter the Hermit was mad as a cuckoo, and she was dismissive of his followers, a mere handful of warriors surrounded by a host of civilians outnumbering the sand of the seashore all the stars of heaven, carrying palms and bearing crosses on their shoulders. This hotchpotch band camped across the Bosphorus from the Byzantine capital while they waited for more crusaders to turn up. They camped, made merry, and attempted a few half-cocked raids inland against Kilij Arslan's Seljuks. In the course of the skirmishing, many of them were killed. It was not an auspicious start. By 1097, however, things were looking more promising for the Crusaders, as better organised armies, commanded by lords and staffed by knights, began to appear in Byzantine territory. These at least were serious warriors. Among the leaders of this so-called Prince's Crusade were Raymond, Count of Toulouse, the French king's brother, Hugh of Vermandois, William the Conqueror's son, Robert Curthose, Duke of Normandy, Robert, Count of Flanders, and a pair of ambitious brothers called Godfrey of Bouillon 
and Baldwin of Boulogne. Bishop Adhemar of Lepuy travelled as Urban's representative and papal legate. The Normans of Italy were represented by Bohemond of Taranto, one of the most controversial and charismatic men of his age. Bohemond's father, Robert Guiscard, had been a thorn in Alexius Komnenos's side for many years, using his base in southern Italy as a raiding station for attacks on western Byzantium. So Bohemond was already known in Constantinople. Anna Komnini described him as spiteful, malevolent and utterly untrustworthy, a villain who wished to destroy Byzantium under the guise of rescuing it. Anna did, however, grudgingly admire Bohemond's macho charm, describing him as tall, thick-chested and handsome, short-haired and clean-shaven with sparkling blue eyes. Bohemond was a divisive presence among the armies who arrived to save Constantinople. Nevertheless, he and his colleagues, including as many as 80,000 armed pilgrims, were about to effect a radical reordering of the Near East. Having arrived in Constantinople during the early months of 1097 and enjoyed Emperor Alexios's sumptuous hospitality for a few weeks over Easter, Bohemond and the other princes eventually got down to business at the end of the spring. Their task was a huge one, driving Kilij Arslan and any other Turkish warlords back through Asia Minor and restoring captured cities to the control of the Byzantine emperor before making their way through Syria towards Jerusalem. It would be very difficult, even for an army with a corps of 7,500 knights trained in lethal, Frankish, couched lance warfare. They would have to fight in unfamiliar country, relying on military advisers provided by Constantinople, such as Tatikios, an Arab-Greek eunuch who had been deprived of not only the usual parts, but also his nose, in place of which he wore a gold prosthesis. To survive, the Crusaders would have to march hundreds of miles, cope with fiercely hot summers and steep, uneven terrain, repel constant harrying by Turkish horsemen, and even see off the threat of hostile wildlife. This was no joke. During the summer of 1097, Godfrey of Bouillon was attacked by a gigantic bear, which nearly mauled him to death. Most of all, they would have to fight against an enemy that all the might of Byzantium had thus far been unable to hold at bay. What transpired during 1097 and early 1098, therefore, was little short of a miracle. A sensible betting person would have backed the Crusaders to be starved, parched or hacked to death within a few weeks of their departure from Constantinople. Alexios surely packed them off on their mission, suspecting that he would never hear from most of them again. Instead, the Westerners undertook one of the greatest marches of the Middle Ages, all the way across Asia Minor and down through the Amanus Nur Mountains into Syria. They survived almost indescribably terrible privations, trudging onwards no matter what hardships they endured, and when they stopped from time to time to fight, they recorded battlefield victories that left them, and future generations, in no doubt that God himself was on their side, protecting them as they marched in Christ's name. Their first stop was at the city of Nicaea, where in late May and early June, the crusading army conducted a successful siege of several weeks, during which severed heads were used as ammunition for catapults, and from which many Frankish knights came away gleefully wielding Turkish scimitars they had prized from the dead hands of Kilij Arslan's light cavalrymen. Next, on the 1st of July, the Crusaders bested an innumerable, terrible and almost overwhelming mass of Turks in battle at Dorylaeum. As the Turks charged, they gave a terrific battle cry, yelling what the author of a chronicle known as the Gesta Francorum called some devilish word I do not understand. This was almost certainly Allahu Akbar. In response, the Crusaders passed their own motto up and down the lines. Stand fast altogether, trusting in Christ and in the victory of the Holy Cross, they shouted. Today, please God, you will all gain much booty. It was not exactly pithy, but it summed up exactly the reasons why people in the Middle Ages would go off so regularly to fight in the name of the Lord, 
The terrifying hardship of the mission offered the prospect of spiritual and earthly riches in roughly equal measure. By the autumn of 1097, the crusading army had marched the entire length of Asia Minor and come down through the mountain passes into Syria. They were now depleted and tired, and their leaders were prone to squabbling among themselves. But their collective spirit was unbroken. On the contrary, they were ready for greater struggles. And this was just as well, for many more hardships lay before them. In October, the Crusaders laid siege to the ancient Roman city of Antioch, held by a white-bearded governor called Yagisian. Yagisian was an effective leader, and Antioch was blessed with extraordinary natural and man-made defences. But it was no match for the Crusaders. They camped outside the walls for nine months, during one of the bitterest winters many of them had ever experienced and finally forced their way into a starving Antioch by trickery in June 1098. By that time they were ill, tired and fractious, so when they got inside the city they relieved their miseries by carrying out a dreadful massacre, an orgy of mass murder so hideous that, as one chronicler put it, the earth was covered with blood and the corpses of the slaughtered. The bodies of Christians, Gauls as well as Greeks, Syrians and Armenians, mixed together. Once the city fell, Bohemond of Taranto installed himself as its new ruler, assuming the title Prince of Antioch, and, incidentally, extending the reach of the Normans all the way from Hadrian's Wall in northern England to the banks of the River Orontes. At the same time, another of the crusade leaders, Baldwin of Boulogne, had led a small breakaway mission which captured the northern Syrian city of Edessa. He set himself up there as Count of Edessa. The first two of what would eventually become four crusader states of the Near East had been established, and the end goal of the First Crusade, Jerusalem, was slowly coming into view. That endgame began almost a year after Antioch fell. Having spent many more difficult months fighting their way south down the Levantine coast, the Crusade armies were spotted sending up dust clouds in the Judean hills in June 1099, their rank and file singing hymns and weeping with joy as they marched through hallowed country. The job of preventing the Crusaders from entering the holy city belonged to a Shia governor called Iftikhar al-Dawlah, who was answerable to the Fatimid caliph and his vizier, a prime ministerial figure in Cairo. His ought to have been a straightforward job, as anyone who visits Jerusalem today sees immediately the city is located a long way from any major natural water source, protected on one side by the deep Valley of Jehoshaphat, Kidron Valley, and surrounded by walls that connect to the plunging stoneworks of the huge temple platform. Yet al-Dawlah did not take advantage of Jerusalem's natural or man-made defensive structures. He was also cut off from reinforcements in Egypt. The Crusaders, meanwhile, were aided by the timely arrival of reinforcements and siege equipment aboard a small fleet of Genoese galleys in early summer. This, combined with the now irresistible zeal of the besiegers, was enough to tip the balance. After besieging Jerusalem for around a month, the Crusader army breached the city's walls at two points on Friday the 15th of July. As had happened in Antioch a year previously, they rushed in and put the city to the sword. Even pro-Christian chroniclers could not gloss the horror. They described scenes which seemed to foreshadow the apocalypse. The governor, al-Dawlah, cut a deal and ran away. Behind him, the warrior pilgrims who had endured so much in their four years of campaigning tore through Jerusalem, looting and killing with bestial abandon. Some of the pagans were mercifully beheaded, others, pierced by arrows, plunged from towers, and yet others, tortured for a long time, were burned to death in searing flames, wrote Raymond of Aguirre. Piles of heads, hands and feet lay in the houses and streets, and indeed there was a running to and fro of men and knights over the corpses. Echoing one of the lurid prophecies from the revelation of St John, chroniclers wrote of horses riding in blood up to their bridles. They exaggerated, 
but not by much. Hundreds of Jewish people were incinerated in a synagogue. Thousands of Muslims were trapped on the temple precinct, Haram al-Sharif, near Al-Aqsa Mosque. Some were murdered, others took their own lives by leaping from the platform's steep sides. When news of the atrocities reached the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, it brought tears to the eye and pained the heart. Many at the Caliph's court cursed the world, and at least one blamed Islam's Sunni-Shia sectarian divide for having weakened the unity of the Ummah to such an extent that the Franks, Ifranj, as Westerners were generically known to educated Muslims of this time, had been able to conquer their sacred lands. But they could do little more than gnash their teeth and rail. Against all the odds, Urban II's audacious plan to strike at Byzantium and Jerusalem had worked. The Franks had come to the east. They would remain there for nearly 200 years. Kingdom of Heaven Writing with the benefit of long hindsight, the Iraqi chronicler Ibn al-Athir identified an intriguing and to him, somewhat depressing pattern of events across the Mediterranean world at the end of the 11th century. On the Iberian Peninsula, kings like Alfonso VI had made territorial gains at the expense of the Muslim powers who had ruled al-Andalus since the days of the Umayyads. In Sicily, between the 1060s and 1080s, the Normans had conquered the island and driven out the Arab governors. In the early 12th century, Sicily became a Christian monarchy under the Norman king Roger II, reigned 1130 to 54. At the same time, ports in the North African Muslim province of Ifriqiya, what was once Carthage, suffered sporadic raiding by Christian pirates. And of course, in Palestine and Syria, the warriors of Urban II's first crusade had won their own sensational battles against Turks and Arabs alike. At that precise moment in world history, thought Ibn al-Athir, Christians were on the march and Muslims were in retreat. Ibn al-Athir had a point, yet we must be cautious about following too closely. For generations, historians have been trying to fight the idea that the medieval crusades were at root a clash of civilizations between the Christian and Islamic worlds. For one thing, such a stark and binary reading of medieval history plays uncomfortably into the narratives of extremist factions today, ranging from white supremacists and neo-fascists in America and Europe to Islamist fanatics and followers of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. For another, to characterise the Crusades as a simple faith war between Islam and Christianity is to ignore the complex regional and local politics that informed successive waves of crusading from the late 11th century onwards. Crusading was about more than a tussle of ascendant monotheisms. It was about the changing shape of the Western world at large. From the time of the First Crusade until the end of the Middle Ages, popes ordered or sanctioned military campaigns on three continents against enemies who included Turkish warlords, Arab sultans, Kurdish generals and Spanish Arab emirs, as well as Baltic pagans, French heretics, Mongol chieftains, disobedient Western Christian kings and even Holy Roman emperors. In other words, Islam held no monopoly on victimhood when it came to holy war. Even if we ignore the many differences between the Muslims of Spain, Egypt and Syria, still the so-called Saracens were one enemy among many. And just as importantly, it was never the case that Christians and Muslims of the crusading period were automatic and implacable enemies. There were times when they tore each other to shreds, but there were many other times and places in which crusaders and Muslims rubbed shoulders, traded and interacted without feeling the least need to behead or burn each other to death. This is not to write the Crusades out of existence, simply to say that the importance of crusading in medieval history and its legacy to the world today is very often misconstrued as being about relations between Christians and Muslims and nothing more. As we shall see in the remainder of this chapter, crusading was important precisely because it was such a varied phenomenon and a malleable concept. 
It did not simply define relations between Christianity and Islam. Rather, it set a template for the projection of military power against enemies of the Roman Church wherever they could be perceived. How, then, did this Crusader world evolve? To begin with, in the Holy Land, where the Crusaders of 1096-99 had landed with such spectacular force, there was a period of slow but ultimately small-scale colonisation by Franks, or Latins, who arrived from all over the West, but especially from France, Flanders and Northern Italy. Some of the first Crusaders stayed on in the Holy Land. Godfrey of Bouillon became the first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and on his death in 1100 was succeeded by his brother, Baldwin of Boulogne, erstwhile Count of Edessa. Others went home. Others still came to the party late, in piecemeal mini-crusades that supplied vital annual reinforcements of men and material. This allowed the Franks of Jerusalem to expand their holdings beyond the towns they had seized in 1098-9. They focused on the coastal cities, Beirut, Tyre, Acre, Antioch, Ascalon and Tripoli. One by one, these were besieged by land and sea and eventually captured. Participants in the battles for these cities of the place Western Christians called Outremer, beyond the sea, arrived from far, wide and occasionally unlikely sources. In 1110, the city of Sidon, partway between Beirut and Tyre, was prized away from its Muslim rulers by an army that included a party of Norwegian Vikings who had sailed to the Holy Land from Scandinavia, led by their intrepid teenage king, Sigurd I, Jerusalem Pharaoh. Sigurd helped reduce Sidon, then returned to Scandinavia with a splinter of Christ's true cross, the holiest relic in Jerusalem, as reward for his service. This created a bond between Norway and the Holy Land, which really mattered, at a time when Viking territories were transitioning from paganism to the ways of Christ. And Sigurd had done his business for the Crusader states too. Thanks to conquests like Sidon, by the 1130s, the Levantine coast was home to four interconnected, militarised states with the Kingdom of Jerusalem at their head. No doubt these were small and surrounded by hostile powers. Moreover, the countryside was prone to biblical torments, plagues of locusts, earthquakes and other natural disasters. But the Latin settlers survived putting down roots in the Holy Land, while remaining linked to the West by ties that were by turns spiritual, emotional, dynastic and economic. From the very first years of the Crusader state's existence, enthusiastic pilgrims flocked to see and worship in them. Christian pilgrimage had not been impossible under Muslim rule, but under Latin occupation, Jerusalem became a distinctly more alluring destination. Pilgrim diaries that survived from the early 12th century describe a land that was beguiling and deadly in equal measure. A British pilgrim called Seowulf, who visited Jerusalem in around 1103, suffered shipwreck and piracy during his long sea journeys to and from the east, and complained that the roads around Jerusalem, Bethlehem and Nazareth, were plagued by brigands who hid out in caves, awake day and night, always keeping a lookout for someone to attack. By the roadside, he wrote, lay countless corpses which have been torn up by wild beasts. Yet he also spent months touring shrines that connected him to biblical characters, ranging from Adam and Eve to Christ and the Apostles. Another pilgrim, an abbot called Daniel from near Kiev, in what he called the Russian land, now Ukraine, spent 16 happy months touring every corner of the Holy Land and went away with a small chunk of Christ's tombstone, which was gifted him as a souvenir by the monk who held the key to the shrine. Returning home, he was able to boast to dozens of his friends, family and local nobles that he had said masses for their souls at the holiest sites in the Christian world. Moreover, he had left the names of particularly eminent Russian princes, their wives and their children, with the monks of a desert monastery near Jerusalem, so that they could be prayed for regularly there. These were more than just kind wishes. 
Abbot Daniel had created a meaningful spiritual link between his home country and the Kingdom of Jerusalem more than 3,000 kilometres away. And it was not just religious ties that bound the new Crusader states with the wider world. As the kingdom stabilised under the new monarchy, it began to resemble a western feudal state, with barons and knights granted estates and villages in return for sworn military service to the crown. Jerusalem was never a fabulously wealthy realm or an imperial power on the scale of any of the earlier medieval empires that had laid claim to the same territory. But it was a place where young knights could come and seek their fortune. A significant number of noble and even royal families put down roots in the east, creating blood networks from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. For some families, such as the interrelated Montlhéry and Lepuise clans from the Champagne region of France, sending menfolk to participate in the military defence of Jerusalem and its surrounding regions, or to take up lordships there and remain in the east, became a badge of honour. For others, it was a matter of duty. In late 1129, Fulk, Count of Anjou, in central France, was persuaded to hand over his lands to his son Geoffrey and travel to Jerusalem to marry the ageing King Baldwin II's daughter and heir, Melisande. Two years later, Baldwin died. Melisande was Queen of Jerusalem and Fulk was King. He stayed in the East until his own death in 1143. This in turn meant that, back home in the West, Fulk's descendants remained conscious that they now had family in the Holy Land. Fulk's grandson, Henry II of England, was petitioned in the 1180s to honour family history by taking over the crown of Jerusalem during a succession crisis there. Henry demurred, but the Plantagenets remained keen supporters of crusading ever after. Every Plantagenet king until the early 14th century took crusader vows, and two of them, Richard the Lionheart and Edward I, fought in the Holy Land with distinction as we shall see. As royals and nobles involved themselves in crusading and the crusader states, so too did Western businessmen. For European merchants, the crusader world offered a tantalising business opportunity, thanks to its numerous coastal cities, which served as trading entrepôts, connecting sea traffic from the eastern Mediterranean with the Silk Road caravan routes overland to Central Asia and China. These were buzzing trade hubs. In the 13th century, the city of Acre was said to produce more annual revenue than the Kingdom of England. As a result, every major city conquered by the Crusaders quickly became home to a colony or colonies of expatriate merchants, trading in goods including fruits, honey and marmalade, cane, sugar, cotton, linen, camel hair cloth and wool, glassware and exotic items traded over long distances, such as Indian pepper and Chinese silks. A sunken crusader ship, found wrecked off the coast of Israel in 2019, contained four tonnes of lead ingots, useful for construction and weapons making. The most enterprising and ruthless of these merchants came from the powerhouse trading cities of northern Italy, Genoa, Pisa and Venice. These merchants had long experience of operating foreign trading posts. There had been Italian colonies in Constantinople, among other places, for many years. And such was the importance of these outposts that the Genoese, Pisans and Venetians could usually be relied upon to pull their weight, financing and defending their economic assets when they were threatened. In 1122-5, the Doge of Venice personally commanded a fleet of 120 ships to help secure the seas for merchants, and participated in the capture of the city of Tyre, modern Lebanon, for which they were rewarded with a third of the revenues of that city in perpetuity, along with major tax breaks on their business dealings there. And this was no exception. Time and again, during the two centuries in which there were Latin states in the East, Pisans, Genoese and Venetians arrived in sleek fighting galleys and troop transporter ships, sometimes to bolster the defences of their commercially valuable cities and sometimes to fight one another for trading advantages. Finally, there were the military orders. 
crusading institutions spawned during the first decades of the 12th century, which famously included the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templar. Both of these organisations emerged in Jerusalem in the immediate aftermath of the First Crusade, when they were conceived as sworn brotherhoods of pious knights, whose members agreed to abandon their possessions, live according to a quasi-monastic rule emphasising chastity, poverty and obedience, and devote themselves to the medical treatment of injured or ill pilgrims, hospitalers, or their defence on the highways, templars. What set the military orders apart from actual monks was that to fulfil their duties in dangerous lands, they kept up their weapons training, so that they were able to use sword and lance to attack Christ's enemies and serve, if required, as special forces units in Jerusalem's royal armies. The notion of a military order, which seemed to fuse the two hitherto distinct roles of knight and monk, was obviously paradoxical but it gained acceptance in the church thanks in large part to the advocacy of Bernard of Clairvaux, the energetic Cistercian abbot whom we met in chapter 6. Bernard and his protégé, Pope Eugene III, who became pontiff in 1145, were fascinated by the notion of reforming the decadent institution of knighthood, just as the Cistercians had tried to reform the bloated and indulgent corpus of Benedictine monasticism. Accordingly, they patronised the Templars and their first Grand Master, Hugh de Pin, in particular. In the 1120s and 1130s, Eugene granted the Templars their first official rule, along with a distinctive uniform of white cloaks emblazoned with red crosses, and extensive tax breaks and other liberties within the fold of the Church. Bolstered with papal approval, a promising financial basis on which to solicit donations and income, and no shortage of work to do, patrolling the Holy Land, the Templars thrived. Their membership ballooned. They received handsome awards of landed estates, revenue and other patronage from wealthy supporters across Europe and the Near East. And they built up a network of monastic-style houses in almost every Christian territory of the West, where non-fighting brothers worked to finance the military wing in the East. The Templars were closely followed in all this by the Hospitallers, and later imitated by the German Teutonic Knights and a number of smaller Spanish and Portuguese military orders. Collectively, these military orders became the nucleus of a permanent crusading army in both the Holy Land and the Iberian Peninsula. They became particularly expert in building and manning huge castles, such as the mammoth strongholds of Crac de Chevalier and Chateau Pellerin, today in Syria and Israel respectively, or the near-impenetrable fortresses at Monzon, Spain, or Tomar, Portugal. As the years went by, the military orders took on ever more responsibility for the day-to-day -day business of crusading, until, by the 14th century, it had become almost a private enterprise. Before that, however, they were called repeatedly into action as the Crusader states came under grave pressure from hostile neighbours on their borders. <laughs>